Well, as I mentioned last week, we get our catechism lessons back up and running. So today, we're going to look at Shorter Catechism question 93, which asks, which are the sacraments of the New Testament? And the answer is, the sacraments of the New Testament are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, last day, we looked at what a sacrament is. And now, after having defined what constitutes a sacrament, the catechism now asks, what are specifically the sacraments of the New Testament? And the answer is that there are two, and two only, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That is to say, there are two and only two holy ordinances that have been instituted by Christ for the church, wherein, by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Now, depending on who you talk to, you may be told that there are seven sacraments, or three, or even as many as eight. But we do not recognize these other so-called sacraments because of the definition that we spoke of last week. If you recall, there are a number of elements that make a sacrament a sacrament. First, there is the outward invisible sign. In the sacraments, there is some visible element in action which together signify some spiritual benefit. So in the case of the Lord's Supper here, I just pointed that because it's right here. You have the bread and the wine. Those are the signs. Secondly, then there's the thing that these signs point you to, signify, the thing signified. That is, there is a covenantal blessing that is symbolized in and represented to our senses by those signs. And then third, we said there is a spiritual relationship between the sign and the thing signified, or you may call it a sacramental union. And then we could also add to that, if we wanted to, or actually we need to, that in order for a sacrament to be a sacrament, there must be an express institution of that sacrament by God in the Bible. And so those things which are often called sacraments by others are not truly sacraments because they fail to meet these requirements. So when you read someone like Francis Turden, for example, he goes through all the various so-called sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church and shows how they fail to be sacraments in one way or the other. They either don't provide a visible sign of an invisible grace, they were never instituted by Christ for the church, or they may fail in that there's no sacramental promise that is attached to the sign, and so on. And also should be noted, as Robert Raymond points out, that it's not that we come to the Bible with our own natural theology or we define sacrament outside of the Bible and then try to project that definition into the Bible and thus come up with all these various sacraments. Rather, it's from these two concrete examples of the Lord's Supper and baptism that we learn further what a sacrament is and then in turn are able from these examples to form a set of requirements by which to judge other so-called sacraments. And as we do that, it should not come to us as any surprise to find that there are similarities between baptism and the Lord's Supper. Question 176 of the larger catechism addresses such similarities. It says, wherein do the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper agree? And the answer, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper agree in that the author of both is God, the spiritual part of both is Christ and his benefits. Both are seals of the same covenant, are to be dispensed by ministers of the gospel and none other, 
and to be continued in the church of Christ until his second coming. So those are some of the similarities between baptism and the Lord's Supper. But of course, there's going to be differences between baptism and the Lord's Supper. Otherwise, what's the point of having two sacraments? I mean, if both of these sacraments signify this, the same identical thing and serve the same purpose, we might as well just have one of them and not two. But obviously we don't. We have two because they exhibit different aspects of our salvation. And I make that, uh, you know, I want to highlight that. It's a very important point to keep in mind, especially when you get to questions like, to who are we to administer baptism to? And to who do we give the Lord's Supper to? Because these two sacraments serve two different purposes, you can't just simply argue, as many Baptists and paedo-communists do, that, well, if you're going to give one sacrament to infants, you have to give the other sacrament to infants. Well, that's a false conclusion. It's a false conclusion because it's oftentimes based on a false premise that these two sacraments are identical, even though they're not. Well, the differences between the two sacraments are addressed in question 177 of the larger catechism. And it asks, where do they differ? And the answer, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper differ. And I want you to listen to this because it's not just going to point out the differences in how we administer these sacraments. But in, in defining, it's going to actually define what these sacraments represent, thus showing their difference. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper differ and that baptism is to be administered but once with water to be a sign and seal of our regeneration and engrafting into Christ, and that even to infants. Whereas the Lord's Supper is to be administered often in the elements of bread and wine to represent and exhibit Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul and to confirm our continuance and growth in him, and that only to such as are of years and an ability to examine themselves. Just a real quick note. Notice they don't put an age on communion. The age is not the issue per se. It's that they are of years and have an ability to examine themselves. And that ability may vary with different people. Now, in the next few weeks to come, we will look at baptism and the Lord's Supper each one of those specifically in detail. And we will look at what those ordinances are, what they represent, and what qualifies a person to partake in them. But we'll leave those details for later. But today, I just want to leave you with this final and last thought. It's something I think is very important to consider and keep in mind as you go into studying baptism in the Lord's Supper. If you'll notice in our confession... Right after it defines what the sacraments are of the New Testament in chapter 27, paragraph 4, it then says this. The sacraments of the Old Testament in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were for substance the same with those of the new. And I emphasize the word substance. It's the same with those of the new. And you know, in many conversations that I've had with people about the sacraments, especially when it comes to baptism and whether or not we should include our children, I've found that a great deal of people do not understand that point that the divines make in that paragraph. 
Or maybe they understand it and they just reject it. Some people do that. But beloved, they reject it not only to the detriment of the sacraments, but to a detriment to our religion as a whole. This is a very big deal. You know, over the past year or two, I, I have a new friend and a guy named Tyler Jackson. He's a pastor up in Indiana, and he's been preaching through Hebrews lately, and he's been hammering this point on Facebook a lot lately. Here's something he wrote recently that I thought was, was good. He said, to speak of the old covenant generally considered as of another substance, quote-unquote, is to essentially call it another religion. And yet there is no other true religion. The correct view is one substance, one covenant of grace, various administrations, unquote. So when I read that, I got thinking about it more. And I got thinking about all the various problems, and in some cases, just straight-up heresies that come out of this view that denies what Tyler so rightly pointed out, that there is one substance, one covenant of grace with various administrations. And if you deny that, you're essentially telling us that there are two religions in the Bible. And then we wonder how we get false teachers like Andy Stanley telling us, well, we need to unhitch the Old Testament from our faith. I mean, that sounds like a great idea, right? Take three-fourths of the Bible and just dump it, ditch it. It's no good for your faith. This is how you get so many professing Christians today bowing down to the gay agenda. Because, according to many of these people that I've spoke with, we are no longer obligated to the Ten Commandments. The moral law back then is not the same as it is for us today. Now it's just this generic thing called love, whatever that means. And then there are some who say, well, we were never obligated to obey the Ten Commandments because they weren't given to us in the first place. They were given to Israel and Israel only. Beloved, this is how you get people walking around, especially of the old dispensational view. It's found in men like Darby and Schofield that Jews were saved differently than how we are saved today. And then we wonder why the church in this country has gone to pot and where all these heresies are coming from. Beloved, it is crucial for us to understand that while we have certainly moved into a new covenant with new sacraments in which there are real and significant changes that have taken place, we are not to infer from this that because of these changes and this newness that we have therefore moved into something entirely and completely different than what the saints of old had. We're not preaching a new gospel. We're not teaching a different gospel from that of the Old Testament. It's not a new plan of salvation. It's not a plan B. This is not a different God. It's not a different Savior. It's not a different means to salvation. The substance is the same and has never changed. 1 Chronicles 16, 13 which one of those books they tell us to ditch, says this, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. John Calvin wrote, All men 
adopted by God into the company of his people since the beginning of the world were covenanted to him by the same law and by the bond of the same doctrine as obtains among us, unquote. And then Calvin wrote this in his commentary on Jer uh, Jeremiah. He said, now as to the new covenant, it is not so called because it is contrary to the first covenant, for God is never inconsistent with himself, nor is he unlike himself. He then, who once made a covenant with his chosen people, had not changed his purpose as though he had forgotten his faithfulness. It then follows that the first covenant was inviolable. Besides, he had already made his covenant with Abraham, and the law was a confirmation of that covenant. As then the law depended on that covenant which God made with his servant Abraham, it follows that God could never have made a new, that is, a contrary, as a different covenant. God in the gospel brings forward nothing but what the law contains. We hence see that God has so spoken from the beginning that he has not changed, no, not a syllable, with regard to the substance of the doctrine. For he has included in the law the rule of perfect life and has also shown what is the way of salvation by types and figures led the people to Christ, unquote. So it's in light of this biblical reality that Joe Moorcraft writes that because of this unity of God's covenant, we would expect many continuities between the older covenants in the Old Testament and the new covenant. The older covenants and the new covenants have, and then he gives a list of the following. And I'm just, there's 11 of these, but we'll go through them real quick. These are the continuities that the Bible speaks of between the older covenants and the new covenant to show you that it's the same substance, right? One, it's the same participants. The Lord God and his covenant people in Christ in a continued line of generations. Galatians 3, 28 through 29 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In the new covenant, exiled and penitent Israelites, along with believing Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, comprised the reconstructed new Israel in Christ. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In Hebrews 8, 8 and following, refers to the promises of the new covenant to, quote, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which in New Testament language refers to believers in Jesus Christ, regardless of their ethnic origin, to whom the book of Hebrews was addressed. And if you'll notice that the us in Hebrews 1-2 and the we in Hebrews 2-1 are those who will inherit salvation in Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Number two, it's the same gospel from old to new. Paul wrote, to, uh, wrote in Romans 1, Starting verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from Abraham according, or from David according to the flesh. In Galatians 3.8, in the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And the emphasis there is not on faith, but on Gentiles. Third, it's the same Christ from old to new. 
In Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Does that sound like there was a different way of salvation? Thousands of years? No, Jesus says no one comes to the Father except through me. That's always been the case from old to new. In Acts 4, 12, in a similar fashion, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among, which by men, uh, given among men by which we must be saved. And then Hebrews 11 Verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. Moses did. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Fourth, it's the same faith. Romans 4, verse 11, He, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So he's the father of both Jew and Gentile. Fifth, it's the same comprehensive blessings that are bestowed in the new as was in the old. Acts 10, uh, verses 42 and 43. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Sixth, it's the same law. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 through 18, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not, 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 an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Seventh, it's the same church from old to new. Acts 7, 38. This is the one who was in the congregation, that is the ecclesia in the Greek, the assembly, the church. This is the one who was in the church in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And then Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Eight, it's the same goal. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter calls us a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
These were the same words that were applied to Israel in Exodus 19, where Moses writes, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Nine, it's the same definitions. For example, the word sin in all biblical covenants is a transgression of God's law. That definition never changes. Ten, it's the same foundation. All of the covenants of promise are covenants of grace that are enjoyed by faith in Jesus Christ. Genesis 15, 6 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Deuteronomy 9, 4 says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust him out before you, that it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And in Galatians 3, 16 through 18, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And in Romans 3, 28 through 4, 3, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow, overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What shall we say then that was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. I mean, I don't, how much more explicit can it be? Paul here is telling you how Abraham was saved, and yet we have people that deny this. And then lastly, 11th, it's the same operating principles between the old and new. Greg Bonson wrote, Grace is our foundation, and holiness the character of all covenant relationships with God. No one can be a friend to the covenant God and live in disobedience to him. That principle is the same in the old as it is in the new. You can look at Deuteronomy chapter 28 and then John 15, 14. The New Testament believer is committed to obey the law of God of grace as much as the Old Testament believer. In fact, he's more accountable to do so because he has greater knowledge. And continued blessings rest upon perseverance and well-doing. Hebrews 3.14 says, For if we have come to share in Christ, or for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, beloved, the Bible is emphatically clear. It is the same exact substance it's the same christ it's the same gospel it's the same salvation that is now exhibited under a new administration and administered by the preaching of the word and the sacraments of baptism and the lord's supper that existed in the old what was administered by promises prophecies sacrifices circumcision the pascal lamb and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the jews all four signifying Christ to come, were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah 
by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. And so as we go on to study the details of baptism and the Lord's Supper in the weeks to come, again, this understanding is so important because as we come to these sacraments and we look at you know, what they are, their role, their importance, we're not just limited to the book of Acts like some people want to do or Galatians or Colossians. Rather, we have the entire Bible to inform us as to what the purpose is of these sacraments and what they are signifying and pointing us to. It's the same substance as was in the old. And why in the world would you cut out three-fourths of your Bible in order to figure out what a sacrament is? It's, it's, it's insane. It's suicide. The substance for which these sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper signify and exhibit is the same substance for which the old sacrament signified and exhibited. Do not unhitch three-fourths of God's word from your study. If you want to unhitch something from your life, get rid of Andy Stanley and his two religions. And let us learn that God nor his sacraments are to be trifled with, and may we diligently make proper use of them as they serve to represent Christ and his benefits, as they have always served and to confirm our interest in him, to put a visible difference between those that belong to the church and the rest of the world, and to engage us in the, to the service of God in Christ according to his word. And lastly, let us not be like those who partook in these sacraments of the covenant apart from faith. Remember, I read that uh, last week in 1 Corinthians 10. It's exactly what you had going on with so many in Israel. They partook of these things, but they did so apart from faith trusting in the ordinances themselves and not in the one to whom these ordinances represent and point us to. And the Lord destroyed them just as he will you if you do the same. That message has never changed. The substance is the same. Now in there because I'm over my time.